Hey, Aspire listeners, I'm so excited about this episode today with my good friend Richard Shell. He is a professor at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And our topic today is on values. So for instance, if you're in an organization and they're asking you to do something that you don't feel aligns with your values, how do you move forward in that situation? And then also, how do you advance within that organization or with your career goals? Richard does a fabulous job of talking about his new book, which has a wonderful acronym that's going to help you navigate through those really difficult times when your values are really tested. Stick around as Richard is going to provide so much value on a really difficult topic of maintaining our values as a leader. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Richard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Josh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Richard, I know that you have vast experience in all levels of education, and I'm so excited to have you on this podcast to talk about leadership and I would love to hear about your journey in education. Great. Thank you. Well, it's a pretty non-traditional journey, I have to say, from looking back, because I'm sort of, you know, I'm at a I'm at a place in my career where it's sort of in the in the beginning of the end, I think, of the professional part of my career. But I think my first job teaching was in a daycare center kindergarten in the northeast quarter of Washington, DC, in the poorest sections of the city. I was the gym teacher. I was a turtle and all the kids rode on my back. <laughs> and and it was my first introduction to Mr. Rogers. At the end, this is a long time ago, but I at the end of the day, we would gather all the children in a room with a television set and Mr. Rogers was on. And I'd never seen Mr. Rogers before. I was uh, about 24 years old at the time. And I couldn't quite, you know, he's sort of mesmerizing person and but almost hypnotic in a kind of weird way and 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 I I would watch the children watch him and I I suddenly understood what his power was because these were very challenged environment and the children were traumatized and incredibly energetic and children but they had a lot of issues and when Mr. Rogers came on they all just sat and they were quiet and there was something about his presence as a teacher, as a presence over the tube that just captivated them and gave them peace. It was a really interesting experience right at the beginning of my sort of life. I was doing this job because I was a conscientious objector and a war resistor in the Vietnam War era. Sure. And this was part of the period of my life where I was doing alternative service and social work. So I was actually also a social worker in Washington, D.C. I work with families in condemned buildings, trying to help them get housing. So, so that was my first teaching experience. I then went on the road. I became a member of a traveling theater company called the People's Revolutionary Road Company. And I played guitar and slide whistle and kazoo. And we played at union halls and you know all kinds of places all over the country. We, we drove around the country in a yellow school bus and parked and played our thing. And then, then the next teaching experience I had was a short period of time when I taught in sixth grade in a middle school in Princeton, New Jersey. It was an all-girls Catholic school. And so that was strange. I was, you know, and the nuns were there. But, you know, it was another teaching experience. And it was, it was amazing and different. 
And then finally came after a long journey, which I won't bore you with, but it involved staying in Buddhist monasteries and Asia, Sri Lanka, being invited to be a monk in South Korea in a Buddhist Zen monastery. And then finally coming home and living in my parents' basement when I was in my late 20s, selling insulation door to door in Rockbridge County, Virginia. And then and then finally deciding that I needed to make a living. So I went to law school at UVA. It was in the first year of my UVA law experience that I got my vocation. So I was in a contracts class in the first year of law school, and there are 150 students in a classroom, all galvanized by this amazing teacher. In a the typical law school classroom is, is the teacher is in the focal point of a pit with a kind of amphitheater. And I was one of the students and I had my hand up in the air all the time because I was a very participant type student. And, and there was just a moment in the middle of that class where I just, I levitated over the class. I just like floated to the center of the class and I looked down on what was happening there. And I saw it's a tremendous number of very bright, you know, people all, you know, leaning forward toward this teacher. And I realized what I needed to do. I wanted to be that teacher. And all the stuff that had gone before collected there. I'd, I'd learned to be an actor, an improvisational actor. I'd learned to be a musician. I'd, I'd learned enough about law to realize that it was sort of interesting. And I, I just said, okay, I've been asking myself for 10 years, what, I want, what am I going to do with my life? And all of a sudden, it just crystallized in that moment. And so then it was like, okay, what do you got to do to be that guy in the middle of the class? And to be a law professor, you have to graduate at the top of your law class. You have to get a clerkship on a federal court of appeals. You have to write articles. You have to do all this stuff. But I was totally convinced this was my vocation. And so I just did all that stuff. And it took me another six, seven years. And, and then I ended up being fortunate enough to get an offer to teach law, business law at the Wharton School of Business. And that was where I got my first job as 37 years old as an assistant professor. And I've been there ever since. And I've had the, the, the wonderful opportunity as a, as a professor, because I, of course, then you have to go through a whole nother set of hoops to get tenure. But I've had the opportunity in that environment to teach every level. I've taught, I love teaching undergraduates. I've taught undergraduates. I've invented all the courses that I teach. I have a course on success, the meaning of success that I teach the seniors. I have a course on responsibility that I teach the MBA students. I have a course on negotiation and influence. I teach to executives, including superintendents of school districts. Yeah. Uh, and I've actually worked with, we have a, a publication called Knowledge at Wharton at Wharton. And there's a high school edition called Knowledge at Wharton High School. And I've taught uh, large audiences of public school teachers and administrators who've come to Wharton for leadership training. And I've taught them both materials on influence as well as on uh, how do you think about what the word success means. Right. And it's just been this amazing journey and also just a, an amazing platform to practice what I love to do. In speaking with, you know, all of these different businesses and executives, superintendents, you know, you're, you're speaking to some of the brightest minds in the world. 
And I loved what you said before we even push record, which is you're you're saying I'm just a teacher, like that's who I am inside, and you're you're so much more than that. And I'm just wondering through your experience with like kindergartners to your sixth grade all girls Catholic school to the <laughs> Buddhist experience, like what transformed you to the point where you felt comfortable to speak into the lives of leaders? Ah, that's a great question. Well, I think I think I, I teach my students that life is an open book exam. And there are three questions on the exam. And the answers will change as your life goes on. So you have to answer them more than once. But the three questions that you have to answer are who am I, what am I gonna do, and who am I gonna do it with? And I think uh, you can answer them in any order. Uh, And actually in my life, I, I got to the who am I first because my life was disrupted. I forgot to mention I became a war resistor, but I forgot to mention my dad was a general in the Marine Corps. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so that called the question in a big way, yeah. who, who am I? Because I had to stand up with a different set of values than my parents had. My grandparents had both been in the military. My sister was married to a naval officer. Yeah. I was a military uh, I was destined to be in the military. So, so the fact that I went the other way yep. with the values that I embraced caused me to have to decide who am I? And I think, you know, I tell my students always own the conflicts that you've overcome because you may think they're small. I mean, I, I had the feeling for myself that they were kind of momentous because it was it was just such a stretch from one part of the value spectrum to the other in my in my generation. But the conflicts you overcome define where your confidence will lie. Because the overcoming of conflict is the the, the kiln in which we develop our identities. So so who am I was first for me, and that became uh, uh, kind of anchor. And it really didn't matter what I did because I knew who I was. I knew when I looked out at the world, I had a point of view and I had the confidence to do whatever might come my way, including cell insulation. I was pretty good at selling insulation. Um, then for me, the second, the second question I answered was, who am I going to do it with? And I had met uh, a woman when I was in college during this very tumultuous time and um, as luck would have it, after all my adventures, I came back to the United States and I was living in my parents' basement, but she was still living in Washington, DC when I was living in Virginia and we reconnected and became partners. And so her guidance and her support and her partnership really anchored me in a different way, more than just me, there's we. And then, uh, and then as I confronted the, what am I going to do question, you know, it really made a big difference to have someone to help talk about it with. Uh, so, you know, I knew I, I went to law school because I, what, I wanted to get out of my parents' basement. And, but then once I was in law school and I had this, this, I want to be a teacher, it didn't come as any surprise to my soon to be wife that that was something I might be good at, but she was the one actually who got me to Wharton. Because when I got through all the preliminaries of you know, qualifications and all that, and I was interviewing for jobs, I had job offers at some 
a number of law schools mm -hmm. and the Wharton School. Right. And oddly enough, I'd never heard of the Wharton School. And I kind of thought it was second rate. You know, I'd much rather be at a law school. That's where I was trained. Sure. But my wife's brother had gone to Wharton. And when I came back home from the Wharton interview, and I said, well, they gave me an offer at the Wharton School. But I also had this offer over here in Cleveland at Case Western Reserve Law School. And she said, are you crazy? You have an offer at the Wharton School? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of went, well, you think that's a good place? You know, so, so who are you going to do it with? really had a lot to do with what are you going to do? Although the teaching part was settled, the where part wasn't. And so, so I think the, the journey of becoming settled in your vocation has those three questions associated with it. I mean, even if you're not married or you don't have a life partner, there is still somebody you're doing it with. You know, it could be a close mentor, family member, sibling. And I think having those three uh, basis is what makes it possible to be leading with confidence and humility right. and and know that you don't have all the answers and that everybody's on their own journey. You know, there's a wonderful statement I read this week, actually, in a book about teaching. It said, every student teaches and every teacher learns. And I think if you can grasp that, that you're a teacher, but you're going to learn from your students. Your students are your teachers. I think you've I think you've got the vocation. If it's a job, then you then you have a set of materials and a lesson plan, and you execute and you overcome obstacles to make sure you get through the day, and you keep yourself safe, and you and you overcome the the administration, and and then you go home and you and you have a drink. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if it's a vocation then I think it's possible to take almost any challenging learning environment and turn it into something you learn from. I know that I'm doing the right thing in my life because at the end of a class, more often than not, I have more energy at the end than I had at the beginning. It's powering me. And if, I'm, if it's a bad class or if, it's a, or if it's an administrative duty that I don't like or something, then at the end of the experience, I'm depleted. And I feel like I've been drained mm -hmm. of energy and I'm gonna have to recharge someplace. So I think, I think knowing that it's a vocation really helps. And you know, I know how challenging it is in so many teaching environments because there's so many things stacked against, especially public school teachers mm -hmm. in, in the environment we're in with polarization and politics and pressures. And I know it's a challenge to keep that energy positive, but I think it's possible if you look at the, at the work you do as not changing the world, changing one life at a time yep. and taking gratification from the little things that you see going on behind someone else's eyes or the little connections you make or uh, the little moments when uh, you know you've like reassured someone or given them confidence that they lacked. And, you know, I think God puts us on the planet to have positive influences on other people. And there's very few jobs in this world that allow you more opportunities to have that influence. Yeah, I love that answer, Richard. And those questions, the who am I, who am I going to do it with and what am I going to do is some powerful questions. And I, I love that. I think everyone, especially right now, 
you know, the, like you said, edu- the education is tough and especially as through a pandemic and with the political climate that we're in right now, um, I know that's pretty tough. And I think those are some great guiding questions. So let's talk about your vocation. I know a lot of folks that are saying someday I would love to be a professor in a university. Um, I've heard that many, many times over the years. And I know my listeners, there are probably many that are sitting here thinking, man, it would be a wonderful profession to, to be in someday. So what is your job entail and what are some key components that maybe our listeners can do to someday become a professor? Yeah. I mean, there's sort of two tracks. There's a, you know, kind of a practice track and then an academic track to be a professor at a university, depending on the, the, the area uh, that you're in. And in, in a business school, we have uh, people that come in who are entrepreneurs or who are uh, people who are former, uh, you know, CEOs or profession, people who are in consulting or banking or whatever. But they come and share that and they don't have to write articles and they don't have to do the academic thing. And then there's us, the standing faculty, and we've sort of the tenure track. You know, I've, I've worked with the ed school at Penn, a very good one, and done some leadership training in their leadership development programs. You know, I don't know ed schools as well as I know the business school, but I do think that the, those two tracks exist. And one of the things that's often surprising to people who uh, are not familiar with academic life is that the academic track is often the most divorced from practice. And if you're a tenured professor in an ed school, the chances are pretty good that you're writing about some theory of a theory of a theory, and you get very far from what's actually happening in a classroom you're gonna get promoted based on that research and writing that's on the more conceptual level. And so for some people uh, aspiring to be a professor because you wanna be a teacher, I'm a rare bird, I have to say. I mean, almost all the people that I work with are people who write articles and then teach courses about what their articles are about. And I don't do that, I've never done that. I invent courses. And then I write books about the courses I've invented. So I, I guess I've just been clever enough to do to ring the bells that are required for tenure yeah. in order to do that which I want to do. You know, it, essentially, the academic track is a PhD, and a PhD is a pretty rigorous long-term proposition. I had a law degree, which in my little world is enough of a degree to get a job as a terminal degree in a business school and a law school. If you're in the education field, a PhD is going to have to be a PhD. And then you have the clinical track, you know, where you are able to like engage more directly in the actual teaching, the design of curriculum, the, the actual benefiting of the community with the activities you do. And, you know, one pays better than the other. The scholarly track pays better than the practice track does. You get to be leaders in the academic institution on the tenure track, but not on the clinical track. So it requires you to sort of make decisions about who you want to be, what do you want to do, what do you want to influ- who do you want to influence. I, I've just been very lucky to have crafted this, this uh, a thread of the needle of an academic career. I've been chairman of my department for a decade. I actually led the most recent redesign of the entire MBA curriculum at Wharton. 
But partly that's because I'm like the resident humanist. Almost everybody in the institution are social scientists. They're all sociologists, psychologists, economists. And here I am. I majored in English. I wrote poetry in college. I you know, wrote verse drama <laughs> and painted houses. But I think maybe that the very fact that I had this very general kind of wide view of what's going on and the Buddhist uh, experience certainly gave me a, a more grounded spiritual view of what's going on. I think people trust me. And so they put me in leadership positions because I'm, I'm really not trying to put anything over on anybody. And I can make, I can help people work together uh, because I'm not threatening. I'm, you know, I'm never going to win a Nobel prize in anything. And I do teach my legal experience gave me the, the sort of insights into uh, effective negotiation and effective influence and persuasion. And I teach that stuff and I've won awards teaching it and I've won awards writing about it. So I think the school views me as this sort of like little secret weapon they can sort of put in place when something difficult comes along that requires someone with a little real world experience to try to wrestle to the ground. But I would, you know, for leadership, I think in an academic environment, people are, education in general is pretty, it's not very hierarchical in, in, a, in a kind of, you, like the Marine Corps, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, you've got your principal and your assistant principal, but uh, maybe there's a union and so you've got some union leadership. Sure. But people come from a lot of different backgrounds. They have a lot of different mindsets, a lot of different values. And I think if you're going to bring them together, I think probably the most important thing is to be authentic, you know, to be able to share difficulties, setbacks, and, and then power up and be resilient and be able to press forward in the right direction. Uh, now you have to, you have to come to the decision about what the right direction is. That's hard. Assuming you can gather to a common purpose, then you just need to be gently persistent. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. So Richard, I want to go back to what you said. You said that we need to own our conflicts and that kind of leads to one of your books, your latest book, The Conscious Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. I would love yeah. to learn about this book. And then also, you know, for those who may not have, have read this book yet, um, just maybe a, a quick synopsis of sure. what you're talking about. Yeah. Sure. So, um, so I've written books on negotiation, influence, success. And now this last one, The Conscience Code, is about values. And it's about conflicts over values at work. So it's really about, it's a tactical, it's almost like a guerrilla warfare guide on how to stand up for your values effectively at work. Yep. Not, not throw yourself over the cliff, not be a whistleblower, not you know, blow up the institution. Although sometimes that's what you need to do, <laughs> uh, but how to be effective as an advocate for your values. And that involves, um, you know, rallying coalitions, being able to uh, move the institutional needle, little degrees, little by little, toward the values that you think are the right ones. The book comes from not only my sort of background of 
talking and teaching and reading and, and writing about influence and negotiation. But also I teach a course on responsibility at the Wharton School. It's a required course for MBAs. And it's about being a responsible person, being a responsible leader. And the motivation behind writing this book was my students were coming to me. They're like 28 to 30 years old. They've already had a job or two or three, and they've now decided to pivot uh, with this MBA degree. But they're coming into my classroom and telling just amazing stories of bosses, peers, pressures, clients, trying to, to pressure them to do the wrong thing, to cut corners, to let episodes of sexual harassment pass, to empower bullies in the office instead of disempowering them. And I was sitting in class one day and this woman uh, was sharing a story that had happened to her. She was in the fashion industry and, and she had gone to a client dinner to celebrate the end of an account event. And she was sitting next to the, the vice president for marketing of this company that was the client. And she felt his hand, you know, sort of settle on her thigh and she brushed it away. And then it came back and then she got up on a pretext to go to the ladies room and sort of, you know, try to break the mood. And then came back, sat down, came back again. And so finally she just got up and she switched seats with another person at the table. It's like an eight person round table. And she went to her boss after this, evening was over and said what had happened. And the boss shrugged, said, well, no harm done, important client. So in the class, she finished this story and she said, so, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to submit to this. And I was really angry at my boss, but I really didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do next. So what do you think, Professor Shell? What should I have done? And I was sitting there completely nonplussed. I had no idea what she should have done. I mean, you know, it, it, was a, it was such a challenging question. So the conscience code is my answer to her question. And it is a, a structured tactical guide that really outlines four steps. When you have a values conflict, what do you do? And uh, it's based on research over values conflict. It's based on my work. I use an acronym, O-O-D-A, ODA, loop, which is actually a combat pilot's tactical plan, the ODA loop. You can Wikipedia it, ODA loop. <laughs> and the first O stands for observe. So you have to turn and face the conflict and observe what's going on. So she was being sexually assaulted. And so she needs a process that she was just sexually assaulted. And offensive touching, I know as a lawyer, is a sexual assault. That's not harassment, that's not, that's not misbehavior, that's a sexual assault. And so she needs to like observe it clearly and cleanly, okay. Second, she has to own the problem, ownership. So observe, own. And that means I'm gonna make this my responsibility to deal with. So she can go to her boss and say, what do you think I ought to do? But it, it's more like I'm asking for your advice on what to do because I own this problem right. and I'm going to do something and I'd like your input. Not, should I do something or not? That's where you disempower yourself. So second is ownership. And right next to ownership is a very powerful concept that I put in the book. It's a chapter title called The Power of Two. And the research on 
pressure, authority pressure, peer pressure to do nothing. And there's some classic research on this that's very, very robust. Basically shows you what the escape conditions are from peer pressure and authority pressure. And the escape condition is to find one trusted partner who you can square with, you can talk to, who believes you and who will listen and say, you're right. So so in the ownership place, right next to the next D, which is the OD, ODA, is find a partner. It could be at home, could be at work, but you have to find someone else. You can't do it alone. And the difference between being isolated and being minimized and marginalized by yourself and having one person on in your corner is just exponential. Now, you can build from there, uh, but power of two. Then with the power of two behind you, go to the D, decision. And that means, what are my options here? Uh, I have to make a decision about what to do. So I could, if you're my student, I could, you know, I could report it to a sexual harassment group that works in the firm that handles these things. I could talk to my mentor who's above my boss. I could, uh, I could rally a coalition of people and ask if anybody else has been assaulted by this client. I could do a bunch of things that would advance. Now, this is not the answer yet. It's just the, the next step. So at the D level, you survey your options and pick the one you think is best with your partner to consult with. And then A is act. So O-O-D-A, observe, own, decide, act. So then you take that action, whatever it is, and then loop. And in the combat pilot, what happens is you are in aerial combat, you take some action, but they take some action too. So now what are you going to do? You have to adjust. And the same thing is true in a values conflict. It's never an event. It's always a campaign. And so you have to say, okay, let's observe what they do. And then let's adjust. And then let's go back to the outer loop again. So once you have a structure about how to take action, and you have the power of two working for you, I think it empowers you to not be a passive, isolated victim and to you know, be empowered to make progress. Now, you'll win some and you'll lose some. So you know, this is not a guaranteed winner's kit. This is a guaranteed I control my life kit. And you learn when you lose and you learn when you win too. So I think moving forward with the Oda loop gives you the chance to take action. And the book is really structured around steps you take at each of those levels that allow you to understand why what you're doing is likely to work and to think about the different levels of appeal that you're likely to face in terms of elevating issues above your level of responsibility. And then the very last chapter, uh, which is what your podcast is about, is called Choose to Lead. And I think no matter what level you are, if you could be an intern in a school, you can still choose to lead if you're the victim of sexual harassment or the victim of a bully. And leading is a verb, it's not a noun. And I think when you act in a way that leads, then you are a leader. And when you don't act in a way that leads, it doesn't matter what your title is, then you're not a leader. And so the book is really, as I say, a guerrilla warfare guide to taking effective action on your values at work. Richard, you talked about that last piece of, of acting. And, and I love that because you know this kind of leads into the last question and, and piece to this really important conversation is you know for those who are listening that want to 
be someone who has influence, who is responsible, who wants to make an impact on their campus, what is something they could do tomorrow or next week to increase their leadership skills? That's a great question. I think the most important thing is to seize opportunities to lead. Leadership is a practice. And the more you practice, no matter how little the leadership opportunity is, the more you learn and the more you learn, the better you get. And the better you get, the more responsibility you get. And the more responsibility you get, the better the problems get. And of course, the more impossible they get. But I would say never let an opportunity pass to practice being a leader, Uh, no matter as again, no matter what the situation, one of the most important experiences I've ever had as a leader was in my community. I led a coalition of neighbors against a proposal at the University of Pennsylvania to build a wall around it to keep, quote, public safety values. And, you know, it was like, are you kidding? Public safety values by building a wall? (laughs) And, you know, it was a two-year process. And I just, I was part of the team that built the coalition that was the community, the university professors, the, you know, the, the various people that were stakeholders in our West Philadelphia area. And we did it. You know, at the end of that process, we had a new university president. We had built a university-sponsored public school in the neighborhood. We had put in new public safety resources, but not a wall. And that taught me a tremendous amount. I, for a little while, I was known as the dean of West Philadelphia. Uh, as an assistant professor, I was known as a dean. Uh, so that's first. And the second is it goes to this book that I just mentioned. One of the most important things I think is to be a leader of values, a leader for values, and not just be a leader and get it done no matter what. I think how you do things is really the story of whether it was worthwhile or not. So I found that one of the most important things to ask yourself is, and you you confront a situation, it's a difficult dilemma, ask yourself, what would a person of conscience do in this situation? And put that idea of conscience in front of you and ask yourself, where's the right and the wrong? And follow the right. Thinking of yourself, not just as a teacher or a principal or a school board member, You're a person of conscience who's a teacher, a person of conscience who's a school board member, and put that value of right and wrong in front of your professional role. And I don't think you'll go wrong. And I think people will follow you with more enthusiasm and more commitment because they know that you're leading with your values Mm -hmm. and not just with your ego or your, your interests or whatever. All those things are important. But I think your conscience is a really important thing to hold at the center of your identity. So for those who want to connect with you, how can they do that through social media or a website or email? Sure. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. If you, if you Google Richard Shell, S-H-E-L-L, Wharton, <laughs> uh, I'll pop up. But grichardshell.com is a personal website I have that talks about all my books and all my activities. And and your listeners will find two very interesting things to do on grichardshell.com. I have two personal assessments that they can take for free. One is, what do you mean by success? And there's six little lives and you have to rank them in order. And I've, I've used this with teachers very, very successfully to help them rethink their values and their personal goals. So that's one. And then the other is a conflict styles assessment, which gives you a personality profile of how you manage interpersonal conflict. 
which is a really important part of this values thing we just talked about. So both of those assessments are free on the website. And I think your, uh, your listeners would find them quite interesting and valuable. Most definitely. And so I'm going to put those in the show notes for anyone. I highly advise you not only to read Richard's books, but then also connect with him on his website and definitely take those assessments because those are going to be extremely valuable to you wherever you are within your educational journey. Richard, I could probably talk to you for another like three hours. I love your stories. I love your experience in the world of education. And I just appreciate you being on the Aspire podcast. Josh, it was a real pleasure and a, and a perfect, perfect podcast for me to join you on. So congratulations on, on creating something really powerful and important.